The following sermon is brought to you by Capital Community Church, located in Raleigh, North Carolina. Capital Community Church is a people awakened to a holy God. If you are searching for a new church home, or from out of town looking for a church to worship with, or simply seeking for answers, please join us for worship at 1045 a.m. every Sunday morning and 6 o'clock p.m. for our evening service. If you have any questions, please email us at info at We pray this sermon will help you grow deeper in your walk with Jesus Christ. Well, good morning. It is such a joy and privilege to be able to stand before you and to deliver God's word. But I also want to rush and thank Grant, Kenny, and the elders here at Capitol for trusting me with this uh, weighty uh, responsibility. It is, it is a joy, a privilege, an honor, and I'm, I'm totally humbled to be able to do this. But if you would take your Bibles and you would open up to Colossians chapter 1, verses 15 and 20, that is the text that we're going to be covering this morning. And it reads... He is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation. For by him, all things were created in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities. All things were created through him and for him. Verse 17. And he is before all things, and in him all things hold together. And he is the head of the body the church. He is the beginning, firstborn from the dead, that in everything he might be preeminent. For in him the fullness of God was pleased to dwell, and through him to reconcile himself all things, whether on earth or in heaven, making peace by the blood of the cross. And you who once were alienated and hostile in mind, doing evil deeds, he is now reconciled in his body of flesh by his death in order to present you holy and blameless and above reproach before him. Verse 23, if you indeed continue in the faith, steadfast and stable, not shifting from the hope of the gospel that you heard, which has been proclaimed in all creation under heaven, and of which I, Paul, became a minister. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your word. Uh, we thank you, Lord, that you have spoken to us clearly about your son. We thank you that we know for sure the way to be saved. Um, I thank you for being gathered together with the people of God. I thank you for worship. Lord, I just pray, Lord, that you would please help me, Lord. I'm in great need of your power. I'm in great need of just you to speak through me. I'm simply a conduit. If you don't speak, it really doesn't matter what I say. So I pray, Lord, that you would speak clearly through me to your people. And I pray, Spirit of God, that you would effectually call any unbelievers that are in this room, Lord. Effectually call them through your word, which is your primary means of calling your elect. And I just pray, Father, that souls leave encouraged, but most importantly, souls leave with a higher view of Jesus Christ, Lord. Exalt him. Lift him and help me proclaim him, as Paul says, warning everyone and teaching everyone with all wisdom. And as always, Father, we thank you. We love you and we honor you. And we ask these things humbly in Christ's name. Amen. If you have your handout, you see that I titled this message, The Christ We Must Know. 
Why in the world would I do that? Because there's a Christ that's wrong to know, or there's an incorrect view of Christ. In Matthew chapter 16, verses 13 to 17, um, in, in, in that narrative passage in, in Matthew's gospel, um, Matthew pretty much gives an account of Jesus at Caesarea Philippi uh, disclosing his identity, or his identity is, is revealed. He asks two very important questions in Matthew 16, verses 13 to 17. You don't have to turn there, but he says, he asks the general question, who do people say that the Son of Man is? Then he asks a very specific question, who do you say that the Son of Man is? The specific question is the one we need to answer today. Who do you say that Jesus Christ is? But there are two different types of Christology. Christology is just a theological word that means teaching about Christ. You have the teaching about Christ that is of popular opinion. We see in Matthew 16, 14, there were popular views about Jesus. Some people thought Jesus was a reincarnation of John the Baptist. Others thought he might have been Elijah. Others thought he might have even been Jeremiah or one of the other prophets. But in Matthew 16, 16, we see something profound. He turns to Peter, and he asks Peter who he is. And Peter says, you are the Christ, the son of the living God. And then Jesus says, blessed are you, Simon, or Simon Barjona. Flesh and blood did not reveal this to you, but my Father in heaven. John Calvin, uh, commenting on Matthew 16, 15, he writes, quote, the greatest vigilance is necessary that through the whole world may be carried away by its own inventions. Believers may continually adhere to Christ. Among the confused and discordant voices of the world, let this voice of Christ perpetually sound in our ears, which calls us away from unsettled and wavering men that we may not follow the multitude, that our faith may not be tossed about amongst the billows of contending opinion. Just as it was in Jesus' day, so it is today. There are a multitude of views about Jesus. I mean, Jesus warns about this. In Matthew 24, verse 24, he says, in the last days, which is the time between Christ's first and second coming, there's going to be false Christ. False messiahs are going to arise. And he instructs the church, he says, you got to be vigilant. You got you, you to make sure that you're looking for that and, and, and being aware of that. So we need to make sure that we're aware of who the biblical Jesus is. And I want to present to you two more things. The first thing is, there's an unbiblical Christ, and that leads to condemnation. And there's a biblical Christ that's from revelation that leads to salvation. There's eternal consequences weighing on who you think Jesus is. And the Bible tells us who Jesus is. And considering that reality, I want to ask two more questions. I know you're all getting tired of these questions. Who do you say Jesus is? I'm asking you personally. Who do you say Jesus is? And does your version of Jesus, does it align with the Bible? These questions are important because they distinguish authentic Christianity from counterfeit Christianity. Because a wrong Jesus does not save, only a right Jesus saves. If your Jesus is wrong, the salvation is faulty. If the foundation is shaky, the whole building is going to crumble. 
The church is built on the foundation of the true and biblical Jesus Christ. So we must get him right. What are ways that the world gets Jesus wrong? What are you talking about, Jaquan? How, how do people get Jesus wrong? What in the world are you talking about? Well, I'll give you some specific examples. You've had these people knock on your door, Jehovah's Witnesses. They believe that Jesus is Michael the Archangel. What about the Muslim? He's just a great prophet in the line of prophets. Or what about New Agers? He's just a spiritual guru. What about the religious pluralist? He's just a viable option among other viable options. But it is important to know there's a variety of ways to go to hell. There's only one way to go to heaven. We must get Jesus right. This is not optional. We don't get to pick and choose. Jesus has revealed who he is, and we must come to him as he has presented himself. And in light of that reality, we're going to be looking at the Bible. And the Bible has three things to tell us based on the text that we're going to be looking at today. The first thing is, the true Christ is the image of God, Colossians 1.15. The true Christ is the firstborn of all creation, Colossians 1.15 and 17. And the true Christ is the head of the church, Colossians 1, verses 15 to, or 17 to 23. Look with me in verse 15. Verse 15 begins by saying, He is the image of the invisible God. That's the first thing we need to know about Jesus. He's the image of the invisible God. Now, the Greek word here that um, is used for image, it is the Greek word icon, where we get the English word icon. It's spelled a little bit different, but it's the same idea. We know in our society today we have cultural icons. We have musical icons. We have all types of icons that people like to look at and people like to follow. But that's not what Paul means when he uses the word um, icon. The way that he uses it here is very specific. In fact, it, it's so specific that we see it used about two times in the Greek New Testament, and it refers specifically to Jesus. We see it in 2 Corinthians 4.4 4, where it says that um, believers, unbelievers are blind to the light of the glory of God in Christ, who is the image of God. And then we see it here in Colossians 1.15 where it says he is the image of God. But we must be careful because sometimes in our context, we'll see that word image, and we think image means those 3,000 pictures we have in our iPhone. That's not what image means. Why can't that be image? Well, number one, pictures may represent a person, but pictures are not that person. Pictures become less and less accurate over time. People don't always look like what they look like now 20 years ago in a picture. We develop, we change. So, 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 so that, can't be, that can't be a reason why um, pictures. And pictures cannot do anything. When's the last time a picture's done something for you? Pictures are impersonal. They don't do anything. And then, then the next reason is it would be highly offensive to God for us to diminish his son, the second person of the Trinity, down to a mere picture. And actually, it would be a violation of the second commandment. We're not, we're not supposed to make graven images. So basically, we see that the reason Jesus cannot be a picture of God is because he is God. The Bible says he is the image of the invisible God. What then does image mean? New Testament scholar F.F. F. Bruce is very helpful here. In his commentary, he says, to say that Christ is the image of God 
is to say that in him the nature and being of God have been perfectly revealed, that in him the invisible has become visible. That's what it means. If you want to see God, look at Jesus. You want to hear God, listen to Jesus. You want to follow God, follow Jesus. And I'll give you some more Bible to support that. John 1.18, no one has ever seen God. The only God who is at the Father's side, he has made him known. And in John 1.18, uh, when it says has made him known, that's one word. And, and from that word, we get the English word exegesis. Exegesis means to draw meaning out of something. Not to put meaning in something, but to draw the meaning out. To look at something and learn uh, what it means. This term was used by the uh, Jewish historian Josephus as a technical term of interpretation of the law. This Greek word here teaches us that God in his essential nature, we can't know God in his essential nature. There's no way that the, the, the finite can understand the infinite. Well, how then can we know God? Well, God must speak to us. So the question is not, who do you think God is? No, what has God said about himself? What has he said about himself that is true? And we see that in Jesus Christ. Jesus in his incarnation explains God to us. He literally exegetes God for us. Simply put, we cannot truly know God in an intimate, redeeming way apart from Christ. You can look at the sky and know God exists. The heavens declare his glory. You have a conscience. You know right from wrong because God put that there. But the problem is we're sinners. As John Calvin said, our hearts are a factory of idols. When we look at natural revelation, we immediately take that revelation and make our own God. This is exactly why false religion exists. This is exactly why you have so many different views out in the world, because sin causes us to make counterfeit gods. But God must speak to us. And then in John 14, verses 8 and 9, we see an account of Jesus, again, giving us more clear insight that he's the way. In John 14, verse 8 and 9, Philip said to him, Lord, show us the Father. It is enough for us. Jesus said to him, have I been with you so long that you do not know me, Philip? Whomever has seen me has seen the Father. How can you say, show us the Father? Well, Jaquan, are you saying Jesus is the Father? No, that's heresy. I would never preach again if I believed that. This is not saying that Jesus is the Father. That's modalism. That's a Trinitarian heresy and a Christological heresy. So Jesus here is not teaching that he is the Father. Again, we believe in one God who's existed eternally in three persons. He's the second person of the Godhead. He is not the Father. He is saying that in his incarnation, he perfectly reveals the nature of his Father. Jesus is the only member of the Trinity that can be seen. Sometimes just when we get to heaven, uh, will we see three, three things standing? No, we're going to see Christ, the glorified Christ. That's who we're going to see. He's the member of the Godhead who has been made visible. When you look at him, you see all that can be seen about God that has been made visible by God. He's an all-sufficient revelation, visible revelation of God. What well, do you got Bible to support that, Jaquan? John 12, 45. He who has seen me has seen the one who sent him. Notice, Jesus was sent by somebody else. He can't be the same person that sent himself. He, he, who, he who sees me sees the one who sent me. The Father sent the Son, and the Son reveals the Father. 
In the Old Testament, in Exodus 33, can you were like this? In verses 17 to 23, Moses asked God, show me your glory. God revealed it to him in a, in a limited way. Make sure you understand that. Moses saw the glory of God in a, limited, in, in a limited way. God told Moses, you cannot see my face, for no man can see me and live. Then God hid Moses in the cleft of a rock and passed by. The glory that Moses saw was a veiled glory. He saw something about God, but he didn't see what Christ could show us. Now in Christ, we have an even greater revelation of the glory than what Moses had. Because in Christ, the glory of God is seen fully. Where is that in the Bible? Paul, Paul talks about it in 2 Corinthians 3, verse 18. And we all, this is talking about believers, with, with unveiled face, beholding the glory of God, are being transformed in the same image from one degree of glory to another. That's Jesus Christ. And I know, I know it's Jesus Christ because in uh, 2 Corinthians 4, verse uh, 4, he says, God has caused the light to shine in our hearts, giving to us the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. So when we look at him, that's all the glory of God that we're going to see by looking at the sun. And then Paul is clear that the real Jesus is the image of God. We see God by beholding Christ. What does that mean for us? It means three things. First thing is we see God by looking at Christ. Looking outside of Christ to see God would be trying to see the sun blindfolded. You're not going to see the glory of the sun if you're blindfolded. You can't see the rays that shine through if you're blindfolded. And just as blind, uh, being blindfolded hinders us from the brightness of the sun, so does false religion, false Christ in our own minds hinder us from seeing the glory of God that is in Jesus Christ. So when we look to him, the glory of God shines. We must make sure that we're looking to him. We find God in Christ. Since Jesus is the image of God, he is God, which means our search for God ends when we behold Jesus. In Colossians 2.9, it says, In him the fullness of deity dwelt bodily. Third thing, we must turn away from idols. In 1 John 5, verses 20 to 21, it says we know the truth, and that truth came to, came to us in Jesus Christ. And then John ends that, ends that passage by saying, Little children, keep yourselves from idols. Once you know Jesus, you don't need to follow anything else. Once you know Jesus... You won't turn back to false religion. Once you know Jesus, th that search for who God is comes to an end in seeing him. Then we move on to the next point. Paul describes Jesus as the firstborn of all creation. The term firstborn here, it does not mean that Jesus had a beginning. Jesus had no beginning. Such an interpretation would be a heresy called Arianism. Arianism tried to reduce Jesus down to just a mere uh, created being. And, and, and they basically taught that Jesus is a lesser God. And among others, Jehovah's Witnesses and Islam are the cults that teach this heresy. But Jesus is what theologians call homoousius. That just means the same substance. You have same substance, different substance, similar substance. Two of those are wrong and only one of those are right. If he's not the same substance as the Father, that's not Jesus of the Bible. 
We believe that Jesus is God. He shares the same nature as the Father. He might be a distinct person from the Father, but he shares the same nature and essence of being as the Father. So we don't mean that he's something different than the Father. He's God. He's God in the flesh. You can, you can read about that in John 1.1. 1, 1. In the beginning was the Word. The Word was with God. The Word was God. He was in the beginning with God. All things were made through him. Without him, nothing was made that was made. In him was life, and that life was the light of mankind. It doesn't get any more clear than that. John 20, 28. Thomas touches the resurrected Christ, my Lord and my God. Titus 2, 13. We're waiting for the blessed hope of our great God and Savior. Oh, who is that? Jesus Christ. Romans 9, 5. He's God overall. In 2 Peter 1, 1, he's God and Savior. So firstborn cannot mean that he had a beginning. God is eternal. So as it is used here, it refers not to Jesus' birth, but his status, his primacy, and his authority as the Son of God. This word was also used, as it's used here in Colossians, it was also used in the Septuagint, or the Greek translation of the Old Testament, uh, for example, in Psalm 89. In Psalm 89, verse 27, it says, Yahweh will make David's son the firstborn over all the kings of the earth. It doesn't mean he was the first king to exist. It means that he's preeminent over all those kings. Out of all of that whole line, he's over all of them. He has ultimate authority. He's supreme. He's number one. But Paul uses the term firstborn to communicate that Jesus is the ultimate authority. He is the absolute sovereign ruler over creation. And this has some implications for us. Jesus' status as firstborn, it demands that we bow to him as Lord. Believing in Jesus as Lord is not optional. It's not something we just tag on at the end. No, he is Lord. He's Lord or he's not Savior. He's both Lord and Savior. And we see this throughout the New Testament. The Lordship of Christ is seen in a myriad of passages. For example, in Matthew 25, Jesus is the one judging everybody. The Lord judges. In Acts 10.36, Peter says he's Lord over all. In Philippians 2, verses 10 and 11, it says, Every knee will bow, every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. So, so it will happen. Jesus is Lord. And then there's, there's a contemporary movement called free grace. It teaches that a person doesn't have to acknowledge Christ's lordship to be saved. But the Bible presents Jesus as Lord and Savior, not Lord or Savior, not, not Savior and maybe later then Lord. No, it says he's Lord and Savior. A disciple of Christ is one who is submitted to the lordship of Christ. A person can, can, cannot simply be a disciple of the biblical Christ if they do not acknowledge his lordship. Because once you take away Christ's lordship, that's not Jesus. He's Lord. He's firstborn. He's the image of the invisible God. He, he, he's absolute ruler. And then, if that's not enough evidence for you, let's see what Jesus says itself in his own words. Look at Luke 9, verses 61 and 62. Yet another said, I will follow you, Lord. Let me first say farewell to those at my home. Jesus says, no one who puts his hand to the plow and looks back is fit for the kingdom of God. I said, come now. I'm king. You follow my orders now. 
I'm Lord now. Where I'm going, you will go. You're in my kingdom. I dictate the terms. You can't tell me that you're going to wait and then do it. No, you're going to follow my lordship now. That's essentially what he's saying. Discipleship is to follow Jesus' lordship right now, not five years later, now. And then, if that's not enough evidence for you, if you look up at Colossians 1, verses 13 and 14, look, look at what Paul says. Starting at verse 13, he says, He has delivered us from the dominion of darkness and translated us into the kingdom. Wait a minute, whose kingdom? Of his beloved son, in whom we have redemption, the forgiveness of sins. Kingdoms don't just exist for kingdom's sake. They exist because they're under the rule of a sovereign, a king. So, so, so when, God, when Paul says God the Father has translated a believer into the kingdom of his beloved son, what he's essentially saying is Jesus is Lord, Jesus is king, and he has a kingdom. Every Christian is under the rulership of Christ. Every Christian is called to obey him because he's Lord. He doesn't just have the authority to save. He has the authority to tell us what to do after we're saved. And then, in verses 16 to 17, there are five reasons why it, we are demanded or, or we are absolutely commanded to acknowledge him as Lord. Look at me at verse 16. The first thing we see is, for by him all things were created, in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities. All things were created through him and for him. So we see here, the first thing we see is Jesus is the source of creation. Nothing would exist apart from Jesus Christ. Paul goes out of his way to make it clear that everything that exists owes its existence to Jesus. Jesus made everything in heaven. Jesus made everything on earth. Jesus made everything that rules. Jesus made everything that has authority. He made everything invisible, visible. Paul is pretty much going out of his way to say, there's no category of creation that you can say Christ didn't make. He made everything. He's the agent of creation. God made everything through Christ. 1 Corinthians 8, 6. There's one God, the Father, and there's one Lord, Jesus Christ, in whom all things exist. And then we see that he's the goal of creation. History is headed towards conformity to Jesus Christ. History exists, or creation exists, to conform to Christ. He is the absolute goal of creation. He's the standard in which we should judge all things by because he's Lord. And we see that in Ephesians 1.10. The whole point of redemptive history is to put all things under the rulership of the Son. And then the fourth thing is, Jesus is preeminent over all creation. That word preeminent means absolute priority. It means first place. He, he, he's number one. Who Jesus is demands that he be the ultimate priority in all things. That means that the Jesus we believe in can't just be a Jesus on Sunday. He has to be a Jesus all through the week. In every situation that we find ourselves, we need him. The question is not, where should we follow Jesus? The question is, will we follow Jesus? Because you're going to follow him, you've you got to take him with you everywhere. He's Lord. This reality is inescapable. Then the fifth thing is, 
He's the sustainer of all creation. If he's keeping me alive, he has to be Lord. He sovereignly and providentially governs history and all other things by the word of his power. He is the governor of all governments. He's the king of all kings. He's the source of all resources. He's the life that gives life to all other lives. We stand because Jesus keeps us on our feet. We breathe because Jesus sustains our lungs. We eat because he gives us food. The sun shines and gives light because Jesus makes it shine. The world is not as bad as it could be because Jesus is restraining it. Hebrews 1.3 says he upholds all things by the word of his power. That leads me to the next point. Jesus is head of the church, verses 18 to 23. So the great truths that we learn about his lordship in, in, in verses 15 to 17 aren't merely designed for us to make good theological arguments for the deity of Christ. Because it doesn't matter if we believe in the deity of Christ if we don't do what he says. If he's God, he's Lord. If he's Lord, we are to follow him. But Paul moves on and he says he wants to give a particular reason for explaining his lordship. So the ultimate point is that since Jesus is creator, he is also Lord and redeemer. We see in verses 18 to 23 um, his headship over the church and the implications that has for redemption. This has six implications for the church today. The first implication is the church exists based on divine initiative. The church is called God's workmanship. It's not man's invention. Man did not come up with the church. God rules the church. The church is governed by divine authority. The ultimate authority over the church is not pastors. It's ultimately Jesus Christ through his word. And all leaders are judged based on their fidelity to what Christ said in his word. He, he, he's the ultimate authority. And then the church is under divine leadership. The leadership of the church is not ultimately based on one man or humans. It's based on Christ's headship, his divine leadership of the church. In fact, in the Bible, pastors are referred to as under shepherds, meaning that Christ is the ultimate shepherd that is leading the church. Now, he gives pastors to equip the church. He equips pastors to protect the church. But ultimately, the church is in the hands of Jesus, and we should celebrate that. And then Christ's lordship over the church is the ultimate source of spiritual growth for the church. In Colossians 2.19, it says that we're built up into the head, and the source of growth is God. So when you're in Christ, your spiritual growth is not going to come from any outside thing. It's going to come by, by being directly submitted to his headship. And then the fourth thing the church has the truth about God and salvation. This is why all religions don't lead to heaven. God revealed his truth in Christ, and Christ is the head of the church. Therefore, the truth about God is, is, is in the church. Only Jesus conquered the penalty of sin, which is death. We see that in verse 18. He is referred to as the beginning, the firstborn from the dead, because he was the first to completely and permanently defeat death. He had a bodily resurrection, and he set the expectation for all believers. He is what Paul called him the first fruits of the resurrection. So for him to be the beginning and the firstborn from the dead is another way of saying that he is the first fruits of the resurrection. He's the one that leads us um, 
out of, out of the penalty of our sin and leads us into eternal life. We're not going to get it if we don't come to this biblical Christ. And then, then and the fifth point is only Christ can provide the transformation that we need. You hear a lot of people saying, oh, th um, this is who I am. Um, I can't change this. That's not true. In Christ, you can be a new creation. We might not want to change it, but it can change. And in Christ, we go from being alienated to God and being enslaved to sin, verse 21, to being reconciled to God and set free from sin in verse 22. And as we saw, as I just mentioned, in him we are made new creatures. Our biggest problem is that we don't conform to Christ. Our biggest problem is not other, I, I, I'm not saying that we don't have other problems, but Jesus deals with our ultimate problem, which is sin. When we come to him, he deals with the problem that most plagues us, which is our sin. And then point number six, the true church is marked by fidelity to Christ and his message in verse 23. The church is not called to be progressive. The church has one message, and that's Jesus Christ. Him we proclaim, warning everyone, admonishing, admonishing everyone. The message that is proclaimed is the historic truth about who Christ is and what Christ did. And Paul lays that out in 1 Corinthians 15, 1 through 4. He also talks about it in, in, in uh, 1 Timothy 3, 16, great is the mystery of godliness. That's what the church proclaims. That's what's handed to the church from generation to generation. And that's, and, and that's the distinguishing mark of a true church from a false church. Is she, is she faithful to the gospel? And then, if that's not enough, Paul calls the church the pillar and the buttress of the truth in 1 Timothy 3.15. This is because she is called to be unwavering in her message. And she will be unwavering in her message because God is sustaining her. And there are a couple of application points to look at. We've looked at Christ as the image of the invisible God. We've looked at Christ as firstborn of all creation. We've looked at Christ as head of the church. But God calls us to something. That's, that's only a means to an end. It doesn't help us to just leave here to know that he's those things. God calls us to do something. He calls the church to continually be, provo um, continue to be, to be purely devoted to Christ. Why? Because in him is the answer to the questions concerning origin and meaning, Colossians 1, 15, and 20. In him we have the absolute truth about redemption, Colossians 1, 14, verses 18 and 22. In him are all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge. In him is the, full, is, is the fullness of God was pleased to dwell. In him redemption is obtained. In him we are set free from false religion. In him we have a sure foundation for spiritual maturity. In him we have a song. In him we can glorify God in our marriages, in our parenting, in our employment opportunities. In Christ we have all that we need. He, or as the hymn says, he's the sure and steady anchor. That shall never be moved. And then also, there are unbelievers in the room. There's only one response for you. God calls you to repent and believe on him. Repent of your sins. Trust in the one who made you. Trust in the one who sustains you. Trust in the one who shows you better, who knows you better than you know yourself. Christ is the true and living God. You won't find God outside of Christ. If you go outside of Christ, to find God, you're trading a diamond for dirt. 
The Bible says, he who believed in him shall not perish but have eternal life. But in John 3.36, our Lord Jesus Christ said, if we do not believe, the wrath of God abides on us. The wrath of God is going to remain on you if we don't turn to Christ. We must turn to Christ. He says, I am the resurrection and the life. He who believeth in me, though he die, he shall live. Paul says in 1 Peter 3.18, Christ died once for all, righteous for the unrighteous, in order that he might bring us back to God. We must turn to him. I encourage you today, if you're under the sound of my voice and you're not a believer and you're searching, believe in Christ today. Trust in Christ today. Repent of your sins today. Behold, today is the day of salvation. Jesus calls out to you. He says, come to me, all ye who are weary and heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn of me, for I am meek and lowly in heart, and in me you will have rest for your souls. And he says, anyone who will come to me, I will in no wise cast down. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you, Lord, that you've shown us Christ. And we pray, Father, that we would live um, in light of this vision of Christ, Lord. I pray for any unbelievers. I pray that you would call them. I pray that they would turn to this Christ. I pray that you would give them that eternal life, that regeneration, that transformation, Lord. And as always, Father, we thank you, we love you, and we honor you. And we ask this in Christ's name. Amen. Thanks for listening. For more sermons, information, and events, check out our website at capitalcommunitychurch.com.